Will you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And the brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you'd like a copy of the Scriptures to follow along, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And it's marked at Exodus 1, but it's easy to find. Just the second book in your Bible. Exodus 1. For 33 years, before he died in 2009, radio personality Paul Harvey would end his broadcast with the phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. In fact, his show was named for that phrase. The show was called The Rest of the Story. As we've been looking at the lives of people that God has transformed by his grace, we might find ourselves thinking there's more to the story. And we want to know the rest of that story. That's because, as we saw three weeks ago in the opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God made promises to a man named Abraham. He made promises that he would give Abraham innumerable descendants who would grow into a great nation and they would live in a land that God would provide. But by the time we get to the end of Genesis, as we saw last week, Abraham's descendants are not in the land that God promised, but rather they find themselves in Egypt. We've seen how God worked in the life of Abraham's grandson Jacob and his great-grandson Joseph so that Jacob and all his sons and their families ended up in Egypt and how it was that in that experience God molded Joseph into a man with Christ-like character. But as marvelous as that story is, the promise that God gave to Abraham is still unfulfilled. And as you come to the end of that first book of your Bible, it is not clear how that promise is going to be kept. Today we're going to see how our faithful God did then, and he is now, fulfilling his promises to his people. And as we do, I want you to consider his promises to you. His promises to you personally. God has promised, has he not, to work all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. But many of us are in situations where we're wondering what the rest of that story is. What's the rest of my story? Yes, we believe that God will ultimately work out for his glory and for our good all things But we want to know how, and we want to know when. But I want to remind you, dear friends, of something from the outset of looking at how God worked in the lives of his people in the Bible. You know, as we come to stories in the Bible, like we've seen about Abraham, like we've seen about Joseph, like we're going to see beginning today about Moses, I want to remind you that we read and study in the Bible what most of them did not know. Their lives were writing the Bible. The stories of their lives are the things we read in the Bible. What happened to them was the subject matter that we read and study. So we know the outcome, but they did not. We know how God worked things for good, but all they knew is that he would, somehow. And many of them died before ever seeing the rest of the story. They were called to believe that God would work it out in his way, in his time, and to trust that both his way and his time 
are indeed what is best. And that's what God is calling us to this morning. To believe that his way and his timing are best, even though I may so desperately want to know the next chapter that is the saga of my life. How will I get the job that I need? How will I make it with a husband who does not lead our home? How will I make it now that I'm alone? How am I going to deal with this diagnosis? How can I manage this pain? How will my children turn out? How will our country survive its morally destructive path? Now that all of the questions that I just asked, all of them, notice, begin with how. How will God work it out ultimately for his glory and my good? He's told me, he's told you, us, what he will do, but not how and when he'll do it. What will he do? He'll work all things for my good. What will he not do? He promises me some things he will not do. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will never give me more than I can handle. But as far as how and when he does it, he calls us to trust him with that. He calls us to believe his promises just as he called Abraham to believe. Joseph to believe. And those stories God has given to us to bolster our trust in our story, in our situation. Now we then have their stories to help us with that. But they obviously did not. They were living it out in in real time. These earliest of God's followers trusted God Because his character could be trusted. And we have the stories of that character played out in their lives. And so have every reason to entrust our lives and our circumstances to him. So let's see that this morning. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you again for allowing us to be here. Lord, there are many reasons that we could have used to not be here, but we are by your divine appointment. So thank you, Lord, for working all of the circumstances out so that we could be. We thank you that we've been able to praise you in song. And now that we're able to look into your word, we ask you, Lord, to settle our hearts, clear our minds, so that we, we may leave this place better equipped to bring you glory and to serve you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I ask you to turn to Exodus 50, but I, I want you to, or Exodus 1, but I want to remind you where we left off in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 50, just the page right before Exodus chapter 1. And you'll remember, and if you weren't able to be with us these last few weeks as we looked at the life of Joseph, I encourage you to listen online. We have all of those recorded for you on our website. But we saw how God worked in the life of Joseph to bring him from an arrogant young man to a more mature and and a humble, forgiving, Christ-like man. And he did that through a number of circumstances in Joseph's life, including giving him dreams that God allowed him to interpret, bringing him to great uh, position in the household of a man named Potiphar and then ultimately in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself. And in all of this, Joseph's brothers hated him, plotted against him, left him for dead, and then God weaved all the circumstances together so that by the end of the story, the last chapter of the book of Genesis, we find 
Joseph's brothers coming back to him, thinking that he was dead, and then meeting him again, seeing and learning how God had worked in his life. And this now, this now humble and forgiving man says what we see in verse 20 of Genesis 50. You, my brothers, intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And, be, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, let me just stop there for a moment, his brothers. If you're following along, if you remember, Joseph was the 11th of 12. He's ready to, to die, he says, but it says he says to his brothers. Now that word that's translated brothers may be descendants and in all likelihood is because his older brothers, most of them have probably died themselves at this point. So, verse 24, he said to his descendants, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Now notice his confidence. When, not if, God fulfills his promise to settle our people in the promised land, I want to be there, so to speak. And then the last verse of Genesis. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The first book of the Bible ends with the promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, and those promises are unfulfilled. And Joseph's faith that they will be fulfilled is seen not only in his request to have his coffin taken to the promised land in the future, but also in him saying twice in verses 24 and 25, God will surely come to your aid. And so we are left at the end of the first book of the Bible on purpose, by God's design wondering about the rest of the story. We're given assurance that God will be faithful to what he has said, but we do not know how. And that answer begins to emerge in Exodus. And it picks up where Genesis left off. But in the opening chapter of Exodus, it goes back briefly to retell the story of Jacob's family. So look at verse 1 of Exodus. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Now, the connection between the beginning of Exodus and the end of Genesis is not so clear in English as it is in Hebrew. There's actually a first word in Hebrew in that very first verse that in English is and. And so it really starts out literally, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And so it is directly connecting now what's being said in Exodus to what has been left off in, in Genesis. And, so it, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. So verse 1 goes back to the story of Joseph and his father Jacob, but it actually goes even further back than that. Because notice verse 1 says this. These are the, quote, sons of Israel. Now, you may remember that in the book of Genesis, God changed Jacob's name 
to Israel. But in this verse, both of them, this very first verse, both of those names are used, Israel and then also Jacob. And that's because, now hear this, from now on in the book of Exodus, when it says sons of Israel, it is not going to refer to the 12 sons of Jacob, but to the name of a nation that will be formed by Jacob's descendants in keeping with God what God had promised to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. They are not yet that nation, but they will be as we go through the book of Exodus. And that phrase, sons of Israel, is, an, is a hint that the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham is on the horizon. And so verse 1 tells us we're continuing now. Now you're going to begin to see the rest of the story, how it is that God fulfilled what it was that he had promised. And then verses 2 through 4. Recount the sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Now, these are listed not in order of their birth. They're listed in the order of to whom they were birthed, namely, who their mother was. These sons, as we saw the last couple of weeks, are half-brothers. They have the same father, but they have different mothers. The first six were born to Leah. The next one is Benjamin, who was born to Rachel. The final four were the children of of two of Jacob's handmaids. And if you're counting, you'd see that so far listed are only 11 of the 12 sons. And that's why verse 5 ends this way. Joseph, the 12th, that's not in the list, 11 out of 12, Benjamin the youngest. But Joseph was already in Egypt. And we've seen where that gathering of Jacob and his sons left off at the end of Genesis. And now Exodus is the continuation of this one story of the Bible. And that one story of the Bible is how God is displaying who he is by his interaction with humanity, now especially focused on the lineage of this man he chose named Abraham. Verse 5 tells us that the descendants of Jacob that arrived in Egypt were 70. But those were only the direct descendants. That is, his 11 sons, children, and their grandchildren. They numbered 70, but that does not include daughters-in-law and servants. There were easily a few hundred people that came with Jacob and his entourage when they came to, to Egypt. And by the end of Joseph's life, his extended family was already becoming quite large in Egypt. And that's why verse 6 of Exodus 1 says this. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This goes back to language that many of you are familiar with. In the opening chapter of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. And then God made this special promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Your seed is going to be so so many that they cannot be be counted. And now we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of that promise. But this blessing and fulfilling of the promise to Abraham of innumerable descendants does not make everyone happy because they're living in Egypt. And the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, says what we read in verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. 
came to power in Egypt. It's not that he didn't know, some translations say, who knew not Joseph. It's not that he didn't know of Joseph. It would be impossible for him not to know where all these people came from. How'd this all start? He knew Joseph's name. But it didn't mean anything in particular to him. And this new king now said, look in verse 9. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Pharaoh is fearful that the Israelites' numbers will become a problem for him. So he increases the harshness of their slave labor. But according to verses 12 and 13, that only results in a baby boom. Now we've got, we, have, we have more Israelites. So in desperation, as chapter 1 goes on, Pharaoh orders that the midwives assist in the evil design that he has to stop the growth of the Israelite nation, the Israelite people. And so he tells the midwives to kill the children when they are born. If you read on in the chapter, you see that they rightly refused to do that. And so then he begins to involve his own people, the Egyptians. And he orders his own people to kill Israelite boys and to cast them into the Nile. But still his plans are thwarted. The Bible says they continue to increase in number. And then we come to chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now let me stop. We're going to see in just a bit that this one is none other than, this baby is none other than Moses. And verse 2 tells us that she saw that he was a a fine child. Uh, Some translations say she saw that he was very beautiful. Well, it's not that he was very beautiful. It's uh, in all likelihood that he was, he was healthy. And he would, he would make it. You know, many, many children did not make it. This child's going to make it, it appears. He's healthy enough. Because he's healthy enough, I'm going to do all that I can to place him in God's care and to see his life spared. And then verse 2 says, she hid him for three months. Why three months? At that point, he's probably becoming loud enough, boisterous enough, that he's going to be, and she's going to be found out. And so verse 3 says, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would, would happen to him. So she sets this up by building this, and the word that is used here for this basket is the same word that is used for Noah's ark. She builds a little ark for this little three-month-old. And in fact, some of the same materials are used to make it waterproof. Some of the, the tar and the, and the pitch. And she places the child in it and puts the child among the, the reeds. The word that's translated reeds, the book of Exodus will use again later as the Israelites go across the, the Red Sea and escape the clutches of Pharaoh and his, his army. A number of ironies already in the opening chapters of Exodus in the story of God's providence in keeping his promises to, to his people. Now you just think about being that mother. This child is going to be executed if she doesn't do something. And so she does this, and as she places this child in that water, 
She tries to place him in a place that he will be found and be found by some who could take care of him. Apparently, somewhere in proximity to the royal court. And she has also placed uh, her daughter to look out for the baby, to see, what, to see what happens. So she strategized all of this, but there are so very many things that can go wrong with this, right? What is that current in the Nile going to do with this, with this child if indeed the current takes this little ark? All kinds of questions. But God was at work, and she entrusted to God his fate. Verse 5 says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies she's able to tell. She knows what her responsibility is now for a Hebrew baby. But in defiance of her own father, she decides not to have the baby executed. And then... Moses' sister, who was there watching, says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? You know, that's a great idea, she says in verse 8. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Listen, this is great work if you can get it. Right? I mean, this is a God thing to be sure. Only God can work this out. And this is now how God is working out what God has promised to his people. Only now it begins to unfold. Only now, many years after the promises made to Abraham and to Jacob and to, and to Joseph, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. In Hebrew, the name Moses means that, to be drawn out. But the, the, the word Moses in Hebrew is very close to an Egyptian word that means son of. And most of the time when that name is given, it's son of, and then there's something affixed to it, son of someone else. Moses in Egyptian simply means son of, and then it's left blank. Son of who? Son of this Hebrew, this Levite woman, but son of Pharaoh's daughter now, as she takes him in as well, and ultimately son of child of God. Now, in all of this story, dear friends, as we're going to look at Moses over the next few weeks, today I want us to see some application of this for us. And that application is included in the outline that's inserted in your program. Will you take a look there? And I want us to see three things, as time allows that we see in this opening story about God's servant Moses. The first is this. History is this. It is his story. History is God's story. What happens in time is the unfolding of the story, the plan, the design of God. History has been created. When we have our grand opening in the first weekend of May at our new facility, and we advertise to the community to come and hear God's word. The first series that I plan to do is in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And at that time, I'm going to make the point that when the Bible begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that that includes the creation of time. 
in the beginning. But prior to that, there was eternity, and God created time in the beginning. And so history is time. And time began at God's creation. And time has an appointed end. And the Bible has bookends, the book of beginnings, Genesis, and then the revelation of Jesus Christ, the 66th book of the Bible, telling us about the end of time and everything in between is the unfolding of his story. Now, here's the mistake that we can make, though. We can think that God is only at work in the large stuff, the epic kinds of events. Indeed, he is, and I say that in the first point in your outline, that God is at work in the in the big events. But we're going to see, secondly, that he's also at work in the small events also. God's at work, though, in the big events for sure. Things like the Exodus, God orchestrating all of the circumstances to raise up a deliverer of the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, in Egypt, trained with all of the learning of Pharaoh's court in Egypt, preparing Moses for his assigned task. God is indeed at work in preparing him and in this epical event that we call the Exodus, the exit from Egypt. You move forward in history and you see God's hand in innumerable events, large events of history. World War II. World War II knew the tragedy of the Holocaust. Six million Jews murdered at the hands of the Nazi regime. But out of that Holocaust... God's hand was at work, as, it, as his hand is in all things. And it was just three years after the end of World War II that a nation was established called Israel, 1948. And a, a regathering of Jews from all over the world, all over the world, began. The Bible tells us that at a point in the future, God is going to regather his people into the promised land. I don't know when that is. But God is at work in all of the circumstances, as we said two weeks ago, the good and the bad and the ugly, including things as horrific as as the Holocaust. He uses those things to advance his ultimate design for his world. Yes, he's involved at work in the big events, but also in the small events. You all know that we're involved in this renovation project. And uh, this addition to the building that we purchased in late 2012, this addition was made possible by a grant, a gift of money, to us from a foundation that was created for that purpose, to give money to churches for the construction of worship space. That foundation is called the Lasco Foundation. It's named after a man who is now deceased as of three years ago, three years ago next month, John Lasco who is the benefactor, he endowed the foundation with the seed money to do that very thing. So God worked through our application to the Lasco Foundation for us to get a grant of $700,000 to add on to, add on to our building. Well, we, uh, we applied, had been applying really for five years, even before we bought the building. Most of you know we own 10 acres on Inkster Road, and we thought we would construct a new building there, and we had been asking Lasco to help us with that, but we hadn't been able to get uh, very far with that. And uh, as we had applied uh, for this latest grant for this particular building, uh, in December of 2012, just a month after we, had, uh, after we had announced that we were looking to purchase it and made an offer, official offer to purchase, 
I was sitting at uh, lunch with Ed Martin, Rich Carrico. They're on our leadership team, and uh, we were talking about how's God going to work this out. And you know, we really need a larger worship space than that building has, and it would be really cool if Lasco, you know, came through. And Rich uh, and, and I were talking about that, along with Ed, and I said, you know, I went out to their website the other day, and I saw a name on there just kind of dangling at the bottom of their opening webpage. And uh, the name was Sean Cook. And I said, I wonder who this guy is. I wonder who Sean Cook is and how he plays a role in this whole thing. And Rich says to me, well, how's Sean spelled? And I said, uh, S-E-A-N. He said, is Cook spelled with an E on the end or no? I said, uh, no, no E. He goes, you know, my attorney spells his name that way. I go, really, what are the chances of that? So we looked up his attorney, and his attorney does kind of nonprofit foundation kind of work. Rich called him, and he goes, yeah, I'm a trustee on the board of the Lasco Foundation. But then Rich, after he found that out, he told me something else. He says, you know, he's not just my attorney. He's the guy who wrote up the incorporation papers for our church when it started 12 years ago. Now, what are the chances of that? But let me go on. Most of you know we got a grant for $700,000. I was able to announce that at our first service in our building, February 3rd of last year. But then uh, we started to make the plans to add on, and the costs were higher than $700,000. So we didn't know what to do. We didn't want to come back to you all and ask for more money. And uh, so I asked the foundation. And the foundation said, you know, once we give you a grant, you're on your own. This is what I figured. We gave you $700,000 and you want more? But we didn't know what to do. And I took one final run at them. And they said, you know, all right, fine. We're going to send one of our trustees out to sit down and talk with you guys. And guess who that was? And we ended up getting an additional $150,000. Now, next week, I'm going to go at them a third time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think we're out of favors here. But hear this, guys. Do you see God was at work 12 years ago in what he's bringing to fruition now in ways that we could not see? God's involved in the big things. God's involved in the, in the small things as well. We see this throughout Scripture. God just having a turn of events to move things in the way that he is designed. The book of Ruth, in your first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, tells us about how it was that David, King David, would ultimately come from a city called Bethlehem, and Bethlehem would then become the city of David. And it would be the birthplace of the Lord Jesus, a descendant of David. But that all went back long before David to a drama that involved a Moabite woman named Ruth. And here's what chapter 2 says in that drama that is the book of Ruth. Ruth went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And then says, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. I love the as it turned out. I believe the King James says, as it happened. Hear this, dear friends, it doesn't just happen. God designs it. And then it goes on to say, 
or excuse me, in the genealogy of Jesus, in the opening chapter of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. In that genealogy, here's what it says. Boaz of Bethlehem was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. How does that apply to you? Jesus said this famously in Matthew chapter 10. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Nothing just happens. I want you to see the first word in that verse, and even the very hairs of and. Here's why. Because verse 30 is connected to verse 29. And what does verse 29 say? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. How much does God have covered in your life? <laughs> Every last thing that happens, including the hairs that come out of your head when you run a comb or a brush through it. God is at work in the big events, the small events. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, the unseen events as well. The unseen events. The big, the small, and then he's at work in just ways we can't see, dear friends. Joseph demonstrates faith in God's promise when at the end, as we saw of Genesis 50, despite the fact that he and his father and family are back in Egypt and he does not know how they'll get back, he does know they will get back. And so he asks that his bones be buried in Canaan. Friends, God tells us what he'll do and what we are to do. But he does not tell us how he will work out what he does and how he will work out our obedience to what he says. He requires us to have trust, to have faith that he will in his own way and in his own time. The worst thing you can ever do, the worst thing I can ever do, is to take matters into my own hands because I do not trust the promises of God and thus disobey what he has said in order to further my own ends, to hasten my time frame in my way rather than trusting God to do it in his time frame and in his way. Oh, dear friends, I can't tell you how many times I've counseled people who want to take shortcuts to the blessing of God. They take matters into their own hands, even saying, I'll disobey God to this so-called righteous end. So my family is not what it should be. I don't have grounds for divorce, but I don't see any way out, so I'll divorce. I'll disobey God. That's what that means. I'll disobey God. And then ask him to work it out. Friends, God is working out his story in history. And I want you to see, secondly, you are part of his story. History is his story, every piece of it, big, small, unseen. And you're part of it. Now, how are you part of it? What does God do fitting you into this grand story that he is working out? He does a couple of things I say in your outline. He fits you into his story. God fits you into his story. So how did you wind up where you are? Yikes, we've all got winding roads for that, don't we? Oh, baby. How'd you wind up in southeast Michigan? 
I'm sure you've all asked, how did you wind up in southeast Michigan in January? I mean, how did I get here? And how can I get out of here? Right? But you know, the Bible tells you how you got here. The Bible tells you that your start and your numbers are determined by a sovereign God. When Paul was speaking to philosophers in Athens, Greece, and he stood before them in Acts chapter 17, and he began his proclamation to them in verse 24, the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Then he goes on to talk about the independence of this God. He does not dwell in temples made by hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then he says in verse 26, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. You know, you were born at just the right place and just the right time. In God's unfolding of his story and his fitting of you into that story. And with all of the trauma, with all of the difficulty, with all of the baggage that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, with all of that in your life, it is God fitting you into his story. And it is the eyes of faith that see that. God fits you into his story. And then I say, secondly, God makes you fit for his story. He makes you fit for his story. That is, in the circumstances that he allows into your life, this God who has determined the times for us and the places where we should live, he then orchestrates the details of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He brings all of this in, fitting us for his story. The beautiful thing about our God, one of the many beautiful things about our God, is that he personalizes what we need to have corrected and what we need in order to prepare us for the next step, as we saw in last week's message. He personalizes it. He knows what I need to prepare me for things that I don't even know he's going to call me to do. And in all of those circumstances, he is either correcting something that I'm moving toward in a wrong direction or he is preparing me for, next, for my next steps that I don't even see. And he personalizes exactly what I need, where I need it, and when I need it. If you notice that in the life of Abraham and in the life of Joseph, and now we're going to begin to see in the life of Moses and others, all of them had a period of time where they went through a wilderness experience. And in that wilderness experience, you know, Abraham's in Egypt. He ends up taking a detour because of a famine into, into Egypt. And things go south. Why am I here? Why did this famine happen when it did? Uh, in Joseph's life. You know, why am I in prison? Why am I enslaved? We're going to see in Moses' life. As he has to flee to a place called Midian. And he, for, for 38 years, he's wandering then in the, in the wilderness. Why is God doing this? It is for God to personalize his work in the life, the lives of his servants. Even Jesus, the Lord Jesus, in his humanity, was prepared for his task by the things that he endured and he, he suffered. Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation 
perfect through suffering. Now, when it says perfect, it doesn't mean he had to go from being a sinner to being sinless. He was always sinless. But he was matured. That's what perfect means. And, and, he, and he was matured to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, by the things that he suffered. God the Father preparing God the Son for his appointed task. Hebrews 5 says this, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And that's God personalizing in your life and in my life. So think about what's going on in your life. And think about God's personal hand involved in stroking the brush as an artist to create the portrait that is your life. History is his story. You are part of his story. And then I'll just give you the third one because... You know, some of you won't be able to sleep if you don't have that third blank. You are part not only of his story, you are part of his grand story. And I want to show you beginning next week that my life, your life, and every detail of it fits into the grand cosmic drama that God is carrying out in his world. And so, friends, I would leave you with this. You think that the things in your life are insignificant. God has designed each one of them in order for you to be an integral part of what he is carrying out in his plan, not only for you, but the role you will play in the plan he has for his world. Many of you have heard this proverb before. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all from the want of a horseshoe nail. And every last detail in God's grand story matters. And you're not just a detail. You're an image bearer. Made to reflect God and in everything that he is doing in your life, he is preparing you and honing you to do that in greater and more clear ways. And so as we bow in just a moment, I want you to think about the things that are happening in your life. And think about how you're viewing those. Some of you are in a wilderness. Some of you are facing illness. Some of you are facing a trial at your work. And you have wondered, why is this, this happening? God has told us what he is doing. He's working all things together for good. The question for you and for me is, do I believe that? Do I trust that? And if I do, we will see, as God unfolds his plan, how he does that in our lives. Let's bow together as we entrust our circumstances to him. Our Father, we thank you again that we could look at the life of your servant Joseph, and then the beginnings of what you did in the life of Moses. We thank you, Lord, that you not only worked in their lives, but that you are at work every moment of every day in our lives. Well, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you would help them and you would help me to reflect upon the circumstances that you have called us to. Some of them, dear Lord, are bitter. Some of them are very hard. In many of them, we can't see what your hand is, is designing. Help us through the eyes of faith to trust you, to see from the example of your servants that you always keep your promises. And help us to find great security in the fact that you are the God of all history and that you have allowed us to play 
a significant role in the work that you are carrying out in your world. Lord, I don't know why we've had such difficulty over the last many weeks with this building project. Lord, I have to be reminded of what I preach, that you're in control and you have a good design for this. Lord, I don't know an answer immediately for all the things you allow in my life or in the lives of those you give me to counsel and those who are present in this room. But Lord, I believe that you have a heart that is good, a heart, a good heart that is seen in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for us and for me. And so, Lord, even when I don't know what you're doing, I can always trust you that your designs are good. Help me to remember that this week. Help us to display that this week to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.